0: We are in a series on the book of Judges, and I know for many of us it feels kind of like a Ripley's Believe It or Not, right? Crazy history, hard to, hard to imagine this kind of stuff happening. I've hope, I hope, though, that in this series so far you're seeing the application, not just to your own life, but also just to our world. You see the same kind of pattern happening in our world today. It's not, a, not an unusual, not a strange thing, it's just the way the world is, and last week, uh, Dean jumped in and Dean in and, uh, Gideon's story in chapter 6. Today, we're going to finish the story in Judges chapter 7. And Dean, last week, asked the question, is Gideon a children's story? And I was thinking about that. I was like, that's a good question. I was thinking about that. I know many of you... If, I shouldn't say many of you. Those of you who, who went to Sunday school, grew up in church, and you probably remember lessons on Gideon with the flannel graph and the little, little guy with the trumpet moving across the flannel graph. Uh, I, I remember those stories. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, yeah, I think the first part of the Gideon story is a children's story. It's a story that kids can relate to that you have this fearful, uh, insecure, doubting guy that God uses. And and the reality is we're all that way, but kids are maybe a little more honest with themselves. And so they know, they know that they're fearful, they know that they're insecure, they know that they doubt. And so it's encouraging to know how patient God is with us. He's patient. That he sees our true identity when we often can't see who we really are. And in our confusion and our fear clouds, our insecurity clouds that. But God sees our identity, he calls us up into our identity, who he made us to be. He gives us confidence. He helps us to overcome obstacles as we trust in Him. Those are great lessons, and great lessons for kids. And I'm glad that we teach the Gideon story that way. But there is maybe a problem, as I was thinking this week. And I think that we tend to read this story kind of in our kind of a humanistic view of life, that, that we're all, as Josh said, we're all basically good people who just need a little more courage to be true to ourselves, to you know, overcome the obstacles in life, and God will help us if we just have faith, and a faith in a generic sense, some kind of faith, any kind of faith. Those are, that's what general kids' movies, Disney movies, not to pick on Disney, Pixar movies, whatever it is, that's what they, they all, that's kind of the narrative that they follow. The problem, though, is, again, we are not basically good people. And that is what the second half of Gideon's story relates to us, tells us. And that's what we often miss because we don't see the whole story. In the second half of Gideon's story, we see that we are naturally prideful, selfish, even vengeful people. And without a deeper heart change, simply seeing all incredible miracles, simply, simply having more confidence will not necessarily make us more godly and more loving. Actually, overcoming things and being great and winning victories without a heart change will tend to make us more prideful, more selfish, more arrogant, ultimately, towards God and towards other people. There, is a, there has been, for a long time in my backyard, a bare patch where no grass will grow. It's, a, it's about six foot long, by about a foot across, foot wide. Uh, I, I rent a house in North Torrance, beautiful, beautiful place, beautiful backyard, very, very green grass for the most part, but that patch really bothered me. It's right in front of my patio, so I go out there and sit, and I, I look at this, and it just it irritates me. And so when I first moved in there, I, I uh, planted grass seed, watered it, I think I put a little fertilizer down, and that stuff just popped right up. And I said, man, those tenants before me, uh, Matt and on Stanberry... <laughs> I said, man, those guys are incompetent. What the heck? They just, just put a little grass seed down. What were they doing? And uh, There they are. And uh, <laughs> So it pops right up, and I'm like, man, I got a green thumb or something. And uh, six, week, six weeks later, it was dead, completely completely dead. It, you know, it starts turning color, starts turning a little bit yellow, and you're like, oh, man, water a little more turns, turns more yellow, and it died. So I was pretty bummed, and for a few months, I'd, I'd sit on my patio just looking at that patch, feeling irritated. So finally I said, you know what, I'm going to plant some clover and some hardier grass-like plants, aka weeds. I'm going to plant them. (laughs) I said, I don't care what kind of plants they are. I just want them to be green. I don't care. So I planted these weeds there and watered them. And again, same thing, grew up and then died within six weeks. And so for about a year, I didn't do anything. I just inwardly irritated, right? Just looking out at that thing. (laughs) Sorry, whoa. I was irritated. So finally, about two months ago, I'm sitting in my backyard looking at this, and I said, I, I've had enough. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to dig that whole thing up. So I get a shovel, and I dig up that whole patch. Six feet long. It was a big job. Um, not because I'm such a hard worker, but I just was so irritated. And uh, what I found was there's a very thin layer of topsoil on the top, but underneath it was about a foot of sand, pure sand, and then under that was hard clay. So I dug that stuff up. I put a, I had compost in my garden. I I filled it in with some good soil, planted grass seed, and uh, so far, two months later, that is the, the greenest, thickest part of my backyard, in that spot. The grass seed has come up and it's there still, so I'm glad. But every time I look at that, I feel like there's kind of a spiritual lesson. Every time I look at that, I'm reminded of the importance of good soil. You can plant, you can water, you can use fertilizer, and the grass might grow initially, but eventually, it will die without good soil. You need good soil for long-term growth. And I think we see that principle in the second half of Gideon's story here. God shows multiple miracles to Gideon. And eventually, some faith did begin to grow in Gideon's heart. Right? He leads 300 guys against this huge army. And so Gideon is praised for that in Hebrews 11. If you look in Hebrews 11, the, the, the list of heroes of the faith, Gideon makes the list for that. But when we read the second part of the story in chapter 7, we see that apparently his, the soil of his heart never really changed. So let's jump in. Chapter 7. We're just going to pound our way through the story here. It's a long story, but some good stuff. Chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, So it's always bad when the author starts out with your Canaanite pagan name. It's not a good sign. Jerob that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men to deliver Midian into your hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. If I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the other. Let's pause there just for a second. So God gets Gideon and he says, you're going you're to go out and do this thing. And then verse two is really the theme, the, the reason... Uh, for this whole section here and the reason why God is doing all this stuff through Gideon. Why did God pick this coward? Why does God have to do all these miracles to persuade him to go and fight? Why does God have to use 300 men? Theme verse here, verse 2, middle of verse 2, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. And so what we see here is that in the past when God raised up judges who saved Israel, what's happening is God would raise up a judge, save Israel, initially everybody would be thankful, but after a few years, the judge would die, people would forget that God was the one who saved them, and they would look back, and so Israel, Israel would look back on their history and they'd say, wow, we're a pretty, we're a pretty competent group of people here. Yeah, we, we sometimes, you know, we have a little bit of a, an oppression problem here and there, but we always find somebody, somebody steps up. And takes care of business for us. We're, we, we're a resourceful people. That's what's happening here to them. It's in this natural, kind of a natural explanation as they look back in their past. We, we do the same thing in America. I mean, I think if you look at it, you, God raises up leaders at just the right time that has enabled our nation to succeed and do well. But we tend to look back and say, wow, us Americans, man, we really, you know, we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're, we're a pretty strong nation. Or we do it personally. God does something for you. You've been praying for it. You've been seeking him. God totally answers your prayer. It's amazing. And within a year, a month, a week, a day, an hour, <laughs> we've already forgotten. And it's almost, I, I was thinking this week, it's, I, don't, I don't like to you know, look for a demon behind every bush, but it's almost a demonic forgetfulness that we so quickly, so easily forget the things that God has done for us. And so that's exactly what's happening here to Israel. And so God says, I'm going to do something because I want them to realize this is me. This is not them. This is not you, Gideon. This is me. So he does this weird thing with drinking water. There's lots of ideas why. Don't ask me. I'm not a, I'm not a theologian. I don't know. Why do, they, why do some dudes drink with their mouths and some use their hands and God picks the people who use their hands? I don't know. But he narrows it down to 300 by doing that. So let's keep going. Middle of verse 8. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. Real quick geography lesson here. The, the Midianites are camped on the other side of this mountain down in a valley. The Israelites are on, on the other side, on the, I think it would be the south side of the mountain. On, kind of on the mountain, but kind of on the foot of the mountain. And the Midianites are on the other side down in a valley. Just to give you a picture, a mental picture. Now, during, now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up. And go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, and I know you are because you're pansy, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outpost. So on the edge of the camp, there are outposts with guards. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a a friend his dream. I had a dream, he, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be none other, nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He, interp- he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands, dividing the 300 men into the three companies. He placed trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them with torches inside. Just pause here for a second. So, Gideon sneaks down there. Uh, the Midianites... Are assembled. They have this huge army with all their allies, and they're gathered together. The one mini-night dude has a dream, which is like, okay, barley bread rolling down into a camp. That's an interesting. Dream God gave it to him apparently. But then the other guy's like, oh, well, that's the, that's definitely Gideon, son of Joash. And you're like, what? How did like that's supernatural knowledge? Like, how did he get that? Maybe, maybe God gave him this supernatural interpretation. But it's also possible that the Midianites knew that the Israelites were assembling, that they were gathering their forces, that word had gone out that Gideon, son of Joash, was gathering this, this group of Israelites. And so that could, could be the reason why the Midianites are camped there, that they're getting ready to fight them. But for whatever reason, the Midianites are nervous. This guy is nervous. He's afraid. He tells his dream, and the other guy's like, Oh, man, I knew it. We're in trouble. Gideon's coming with his army. They're going to beat us. Gideon hears it, and he's like, Yes! So he gets his guys ready and they head down into the battle. Verse 17 Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours. And shout, For the Lord! And for Gideon. Uh oh. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. That's important. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torch in their left hand and holding on to their and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon!" while each man held his position around the camp. All the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. When the three hundred trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So some interesting things here. One, we begin to see what God saw in Gideon. God tells Gideon, hey, you need to attack at night, do a surprise attack. But from there Gideon seems to come up with his own plan here. So God saw that this guy's a warrior. He saw that he's a leader. You couldn't see it under his insecurity, under his fear, but God could see this guy's a leader. And so Gideon comes up with a pretty good plan. He says, "Okay, guys, we're going to we're going to put these torches under these jars. So it'll give light to our feet as we're sneaking up, but it's not going to put much light out so the, camp won't, the Midianite camp won't see us coming. We're going to have these trumpets, and as right after that, there's a switch in the guard. So typically when you would have a, a group of soldiers, about a third of those would be on guard at a time. And so as the guard switches, that means a third of them are going in, a third of them have just gone out, and it's dark, and in the midst of that, all of a sudden, there's a bunch of light, and there's trumpets blowing, and these guys freak out. The enemy is upon us, but it's dark, and so they're running around, and they start fighting each other, because they literally, in the darkness, they can't, and there's also different groups. You got Midianites, and Malachites. we see Ishmaelites, so they don't even know each other, and so it just it's madness, it's chaos. They start fighting each other, and eventually they're freaking out, and they think the enemy's everywhere, and they just start running. And then at that point, the Israelites attack and chase them down. So it's a victory. It's an incredible victory. Gideon chases these guys, kills their kings. We're going to skip over some of that, but let's go down to the bottom and see how it ends. Chapter 8, verse 22. After the victory, the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. Dolt, Man, they missed the whole point of the story, the whole point. God was saying, I'm going to pick this coward. I'm going to give him just a few guys so that everybody knows it's me and they're going to worship me. Israel still misses it. Gideon, you're an amazing guy. How did you do it? Be our king because you're so great. Gideon, but Gideon told them, verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon gives the right answer here. I don't think the issue is so much them having a king, because Israel had a king later, but the issue, issue is the basis for why they want Gideon to be their king. They think he's the reason they won this victory, and Gideon says, no. I didn't do it. I acknowledge that I'm not the reason we won this victory. God did it. God is the king for you guys. So Gideon has the right answer intellectually, but there's a problem between maybe the head and the heart, his lifestyle. Like so many Christians, he knew the right answers, but can he live them out? Verse 24, and he said, I do have one request, that each of you would give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to about 1,700 shekels. That's 43 pounds. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's necks, which, in context, Gideon keeps. So wait a minute. Gideon says, I'm not a king. Let's worship God. But now he takes all the purple robes and the pendants and the ornaments of the kings. Apparently, he keeps them for himself. And he wants these gold rings. What does he want to do with those? Verse 27. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. What is an ephod? Ah, uh-huh for the Israelites at least, the ephod was a vest, a special vest that the high priest would wear that showed that you were a high priest. It had some dice that you would roll to try to discern God's will in hard, hard circumstances. But it was mainly a vest to show that you were the high priest. And there were some other religions in the area that would use a similar kind of thing. Some religions would actually put that vest on their idol. And so some people think maybe Gideon's making an idol. I don't think so, given the context that God just gave him the victory. But probably he is making this vest. Now, why would he do that? Why would he make a vest like this? Israel already has a high priest with an ephod. They already have the Ark of the, the, the Covenant, which is either in Shiloh or Bethel. We're not quite sure at this point. So they already have a place to worship God, they have a priest with an ephod. What is Gideon doing? Well, remember at the beginning of the story when Gideon broke down his dad's altar to Baal. His dad has an altar to Baal. And all the villagers get, get ticked off. They're angry. They want to kill him. So here's the idea. It seems like his dad has this altar to Baal that people in the area would come and worship Baal on. And it was a revenue stream for them. They, get, they either get meat from the sacrifice or they get money. And so it's a revenue stream for, for uh, Gideon's family. And so he's probably thinking, well, can't really worship Baal anymore because, uh, you know, Yahweh is the one who delivered us. What can I do to make sure we keep getting money? Hey, let's set up a rival place of worship for Yahweh right here. I'll make an ephod and we'll worship Yahweh in Oprah, in my hometown, in my home. We don't know that for sure, but that seems to be the idea here. And so Israel begins, instead of going where they should be going, to the Ark of the Covenant, to the real priesthood, they're going over here to Gideon's home and Gideon's family verse 28 thus midian was subdued before the israelites and did not raise its head again during gideon's lifetime the land enjoyed 40 years of peace that sounds good but it says it does not say that gideon judged them so he's not a judge he's not known for spiritual counsel verse 29 jerubbaal son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech, which means my father is king. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Oprah of the Abysserites. So now we really see Gideon acting like a king. Not only does he have the pendant, the pendants and all the, the ornaments and the purple robes, now he begins to have a kingly family. Um, a lot of people make a big deal out of polygamy in the Old Testament. And I, I, I agree that there, it's problematic, but it really wasn't that widespread. For a very simple reason. I'm sorry, ladies, but it's expensive to have a wife. Very expensive. Usually man can only afford to have one. And it's expensive to have kids. So if you have lots of wives, if you have 70 kids, you got a lot of money. You're doing well. And so Gideon apparently is raking in the dough. He's got a lot of plunder. He's set up, we think, this place of worship in his hometown that he's getting revenue from. So he has a big old family. has got a lot of kids. And he even names his son, My Father is King. So he knows God is king. God is the reason I got the victory. But he's sure living like he's the reason. Verse 33, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to Baals. They set, set up Baal-berith as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They, had fa- they also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done to them. All right, so a couple application points to this kind of dark story. starts out really good, the first chapter, but ends kind of dark. First application points, God's power is seen more clearly in our weaknesses than in our strengths. God's power is seen more clearly in your weaknesses than in your strengths. God chose Gideon, who's a coward. He's pagan. He worships Baal. He's the weakest man from the weakest family from the weakest tribe in Israel. And God gives him 300 men and says, okay, go fight the Midianites. And God did that so that through Gideon's weakness God's strength would be clearly seen and Israel would praise God and not become proud of themselves. We see a very similar principle in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul has been describing his ministry, he's been describing all the great things that God has done through him and done for him. But then he says this, and I'm summarizing, but he says to keep me from becoming proud there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so just like Paul, God has allowed certain thorns in your life. They may be physical or emotional struggles, maybe an illness, maybe a physical disability, a learning disability, maybe shy, you know intense shyness, maybe a proneness towards depression, whatever it is. Or it may be some circumstantial struggle. You may be facing hardships, calamities. You may be receiving insults and persecutions. And like Paul, these things make us plead with God for deliverance. We don't like them. We're not like, oh, that feels great. We're like, God, help, please help me. But sometimes God allows these things to remain even, Paul says, even when Satan is the one causing them. And here's the reason. The more aware you are of God's grace and your dependence on him, your need for him, the more humble, prayerful, thankful, patient, gracious, content, and joyful you will be. And the only explanation people will have for the, for the fruit in your life will be a supernatural cause. They'll look at you and they'll say, the results do not match the person here. Um, somebody once said that to D.L. Moody. <laughs> he said, well, I look at you and it makes no sense how you're leading all these people to Christ. And D.L. Moody said, well, I wouldn't want it any other way. And people will look at you and they'll say, man, you got issues, dude. But I see a lot of fruit in your life. I see a lot of, a lot of really amazing things happening through you. It must be God working through you. You get more godly and God gets more glory. And that's why, for Christ's sake, Paul delighted in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Paul says, once I got this concept, I I knew that when I was weak, that's when I was truly strong. Because I have to rely on God's strength. So God's power is seen more clearly through your weakness than your strength. That doesn't mean that God won't use your strengths. He will. He used Paul's strengths. But he will also allow you to be weak in certain ways to show that the power is from God. Second application points, don't assume that if you saw an amazing miracle, you would necessarily have faith or have more faith than you do now. And we see that in Gideon's story. Skeptics will often claim that if they saw definitive, miraculous proof of God, then they would believe. And I believe them to an extent. I think God could very easily bring about a very a short-term revival by doing some powerful miracles. If we all prayed and God levitated some cars or something, people would be like, "Whoa, okay, I believe there is a God." And we do see examples of this in history. Right? When Jesus fed the 5,000, they're like, "Wow, this is great. Okay, I'm going to vote for you. Let's let's attack let's march on Rome." There's actually a really cool quote or a really funny quote to me at least in John, in John chapter 2, it said many people believed in him. But Jesus didn't believe in them. That's what it says it there. Because he knew what was in their hearts. So you can have faith, you can have belief, but in insufficient form. Unless the heart is changed, that initial belief will not produce lasting fruit. And the final state of the person may be worse than it was in the beginning. If you ever have a chance to read um, Jonathan Edwards' description of the, the First Great Awakening, it's worth It's worth trying. It's uh, called Religious Affections. It's a rough read. It's a rough read. His language is not easy. But if you read it, it's worth it because he describes the Great Awakening in the northeastern United States. And it was an amazing, miraculous period where people were becoming Christians, miracles were happening, and it was a dark area. A lot of people are like, whoa, it's America. Everybody's Christian. No, they weren't. Most people in the northeast were not at that time. Dark place. God breaks out, does these incredible things. Everybody's experiencing supernatural stuff. But 20 years later, Edwards describes what people were like. And many of those people had gone right back to where they were before. But now they were more hardened towards God, and they were more hypocritical than they had been. And in some ways, I've, I've witnessed a, a similar thing on a much smaller level. My youth group had what I would call a mini-revival. There was a number of clearly supernatural miracles that happened to some students as we were praying for them. And because of that, many people... Many kids, many youth were coming to our church and becoming Christian. And it was a neat experience. I'm glad I was a part of it. And I still know three of those people, three of those students who had these undeniable miracles happen to them. One of those is, an, is a strong Christian woman. She is solid. The other two are not following Christ at all. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask for miracles. God can use miracles to bless us and to draw people to himself they're like fertilizer. They spur on some growth, and they help us, but they are not the foundation for lasting growth. For that, you need new soil. You need good soil. Third point, points, and maybe the most important here, don't assume that if God is using you or blessing you or answering your prayers, it means he is endorsing you. Don't assume that just because God is using you, you're involved in ministry, and it's going well. And you're like, hey, guys, I'm serving in church, and I'm doing this thing and that thing, and it's going well, and this is great, and, and maybe God is blessing you. You've gotten this great job. You've gotten a promotion. You, you, you just bought a new house. Things are fantastic. And maybe you're going through a phase where God is answering your prayers. I've been through phases like that where it's just like, Ding, 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 ding. It's like everything I pray for, God's just like, okay, I'm just going to answer all their prayers right now. I don't know why, but I've been through experiences like that, and I know other people have too, where you just see some incredible, miraculous answers to prayer. Ding, ding, ding. And it's easy to kind of step back from that and say, wow, God is pleased with me for sure. My faith must be really strong because He is doing all these things for me. We must have this incredible relationship. He must be okay with my lifestyle. Yeah, I have these kind of sins that I'm just kind of not really fighting too hard against, but you know what? God must be okay with that. And I made a few decisions that probably probably didn't please him, but he must be okay with that because, look, he's blessing me. He's using me. He's answering my prayers. And so many Christians, especially Christian leaders, fall into this trap. And we forget Jesus' warning that many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and cast out demons and do miracles in your name? And Jesus won't deny that those things happen. He won't be like, wow, you're lying. That didn't happen. No, he'll be like, yes, but I never knew you. Knowing God in a personal way is far more important than all the things you can do for him and all the things he can do for you. And it's significant, I think, that God speaks to Gideon clearly seven times in this story, during, before and during the battle. But after the battle, we never see God speak to Gideon again. God used Gideon to deliver the Israelites, but Gideon never pursued a relationship with God. And that may be an argument from silence, I get that, but based on the epitaph of Gideon's life, I think it's justified. We need to seek God himself More than just his deliverance, his help, his blessings. That was the problem for the Israelites and for Gideon. They needed help. Oh, God, help us, help us, help us. If your main desire is for God's help or for his blessing, once you receive it, you stop seeking him. And so I would say this morning... Are there areas of your life where you know that you are displeasing God? And I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to put in some kind of false condemnation. We all struggle with sin. We're all fighting, called to fight a battle against sin until we die. But are there areas where you're not fighting? You're like, hey, this is just what I want to do. But you've convinced yourself that because you're, in, you're doing ministry in church or God is blessing you or he's answering your prayers that God must be okay with your lifestyle, that you must be on good terms with him. And I'd say, don't make that assumption. Instead, repent. Turn to God. Don't be afraid. Don't grovel. But just turn to God and say, God, I'm so sorry. I want a new heart. I want good soil. I don't want to be like Gideon and end up like Gideon. Yes, I want to see victories. I want to, I want to see these great things happening. But more than that, I want to know you personally and intimately and please you. Let's pray. I would encourage you to just take a moment to let the Holy Spirit speak to you, maybe convict you of things. And again, this is not a time to grovel in condemnation, but just if God brings up something in your life that you've, some sin that you've just been kind of toying around with, you haven't been taking seriously, you haven't been fighting, and you've been assuming that you're okay, take this time right now to identify that and then to just say, God, I'm sorry. I repent. I want to live for you. I want to know you. I don't just want to be used by you and receive your blessings. I want to know you personally. And We know from the word that without holiness, no one will see God. And So Lord, help me to be holy. Help me to please you. Father, we thank you for your goodness, that you love us, that you're a good father. You're not a condemning person up in heaven who's always nitpicking with us. You're gracious and you're kind. But Lord, it's so important to you that we give you the glory for the good that you do in us and that we turn to you and we seek to know you. That's why you do these things, to draw us to yourself. Help us to not uh, presume upon your grace, but to know it's your grace that leads us to repentance and to a deeper relationship with you. And I pray that you would work in our hearts and move us and Lord, transform our hearts And give us good soil. We ask for that today, this morning.